Book two, chapter five of Arachne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Eddie Winter. Arachne by George Abers. Translated by Mary J. Safford. Book two, chapter five. At the third hour after sunrise a distinguished assemblage of people gathered at the landing-place east of the temple of poseidon in the great harbour of alexandria its members belonged to the upper classes for many had come in carriages and litters and numerous pedestrians were accompanied by slaves bearing in delicately woven baskets and cornucopias a laurel wreath a papyrus crown or bright-hued flowers the most aristocratic among the gentlemen had gathered on the western side of the great sanctuary between the cellar and the long row of doric columns which supported the roof of the marble temple the macedonian council of the city was already represented by several of its members among their number was archias daphne's father a man of middle height and comfortable portliness from whose well-formed beardless face looked forth a pair of shrewd eyes, until his quick movements revealed the slight irritability of his temperament. Several members of the council and wealthy merchants surrounded him, while the grammatized Proclus first talked animatedly with other government officials and representatives of the priesthood, and then with Archias. The head of the museum, who bore the title of High Priest, had also appeared there with several members of this famous centre of the intellectual life of the capital. They shared the shade of this part of the temple with distinguished masters of sculpture and painting, architecture and poetry, and conversed together with the graceful animation of Greeks endowed with great intellectual gifts. Among them mingled distinguishable neither by costume nor language a number of prominent patrons of art in the great Jewish community. Their principal, the Alabarch, was talking eagerly with the philosopher Hegesias and the Rhodian leech Chrysippus, Queen Arsinoe's favourite, whom at Althea's instigation she had sent with Proclus to receive the returning traveller. Sometimes all gazed toward the mouth of the harbour, where the expected ship must soon pass the recently completed masterpiece of Sostratus, the towering lighthouse still shining in its marble purity. Soon many Alexandrians also crowded the last platform in front of the Temple of Poseidon, and the very wide marble staircase leading from it to the landing-place. Beneath the bronze statues of the Dioscuri, at the right and left of the topmost step, had also gathered the magnificent figures of the Phoebe, and the younger men from the wrestling school of Timagetes, with garlands on their curling locks, as well as many younger artists and pupils of the older masters. The statues of the gods and goddesses of the sea and their lofty pedestals, standing at the sides of the staircase cast upon the marble steps, gleaming in the radiance of the morning sun, narrow shadows, which attracted the male and female chorus singers, who, also wearing beautiful garlands, had come to greet the expected arrival with solemn chants. Several actors were just coming from rehearsal in the theatre of Dionysus, east of the Temple of Poseidon, of which, like all the sages in the city, 
Phocus was chief manager. A pretty dancing girl who hung on the arms of the youngest extended her hand with a graceful gesture toward the staircase and asked, Whom can they be expecting there? Probably some huge new animal for the museum, which has been caught somewhere for the king, for yonder stiff wearer of a laurel crown, who throws his head back as though he would like to eat the Olympians, and take the king for a luncheon into the bargain, is Stratton, the denier of the gods, and the little man with the bullet head, is a grammarian Zoilus. Of course, replied her companion, but there too is Apollodorus, the alabarch of the Jews, and the heavy money-bag Archaeus. Why look at them, cried the younger mime, it's far better worth while to stretch a neck for those farther in front. They are genuine friends of the muses, the poets, Theocritus and Xenodotus. The great Athene, Apollo, and all his nine Pyrides have sent their envoys, said the older actor pathetically, for there too are the sculptures Euphronor and Shares, and the godlike builder of the lighthouse Sostratus in person. A handsome man, cried the girl flute-player, but vain, I tell you, vain. Self-conscious, you ought to say, corrected her companion. Certainly, added the older actor, patting his smooth cheeks and chin with a rose he held in his hand. Who can defend himself against the highest merit? Self-knowledge? But the person who is to have this reception by the staff of Dionysus, if modesty flies away from him like the bird from a girl, it ought. Just look there. The tall, broad-shouldered fellow yonder is Chrysippus, the right hand of Arsinoe, as our grammatous Proclus is her left. So probably some prince is expected. The gentleman of the museum and the great artist yonder would not stir a foot, far less lose so precious a morning hour for any mere wearer of a crown or sceptre, protested the other actor. It must be that the king or the queen command it, interrupted the older player. Only Arsinoe is represented here. Or do you see any envoy of Ptolemy? Perhaps they will yet arrive. If they were ambassadors of the great Roman Senate, or, added the dancer, envoys from King Antiochus, but, guess that I am, then they would not be received here, but in the royal harbour at the Lucaeus. See if I don't prove to be right. Divine honours are to be paid to some newly attracted hero of the intellect. But, just follow my finger, there, yonder, it comes floating along at the left of the island of Antirodus. That may be his galley, magnificent, wonderfully, beautiful, brilliant, like a swan, no, no, like a swimming peacock, and the silver embroidery on the blue sails. It glitters and sparkles like stars in the azure sky. Meanwhile the elder actor, shading his eyes with his hand, had been gazing at the harbour, where, amid the innumerable vessels, the expected one whose sails were just being reefed was steered by a skilful hand. Now he interrupted the blonde beauty with the exclamation, It is Archias's Proserpina. I know it well. Then, in a declamatory tone, he continued, I too was permitted on the deck of the glittering vessel, lightly rocked by the crimson waves, to reach my welcome goal, as a guest of peerless Archias, I mean the most magnificent festival in his villa. There was a little performance there in which Mentor and I allowed ourselves to be persuaded to take part. But just see how the beautiful ship uses a narrow passage 
between the two triremes as if it had the blood leech's power of contraction. But to return to the festival of Archias, the oyster ragout served there, the pheasant pasties here he interrupted himself, exclaiming in surprise, By the club of Hercules! The Proserpina is to be received with a full chorus, and there is the owner himself descending the stairs. Whom is she bringing? Come, come, cried the dancing girl to her companion, dragging him after her. I shall die of curiosity. The singing and shouting of many voices greeted the actors as they approached the platform of the Temple of Poseidon, when from this spot the dancer fixed her eyes upon the landing-place. She suddenly dropped her companion's arm, exclaiming, It is the handsome blind sculptor, Hermon, the heir of the wealthy Myrtilus. Do you learn this now for the first time, you jealous Thersites? How, how, divine Hermon! How, noble victim of the ungrateful Olympians! How to thee, Hermon, and thy immortal works! How, how, how! Meanwhile, she waved her handkerchief with frenzied eagerness, as if she could thus force the blind man to see her, and a group of actors whom Proclus, the grammatas of the Dionysian arts, had sent here to receive Hermon worthily, followed her example. But her cries were drowned by the singing of the chorus, and by thousands of shouting voices, while Hermon was embraced by Archias on board the galley, and then, by his guidance, stepped on shore and ascended the staircase of the temple of Poseidon. Before the ship entered the harbour, the artist had had a large goblet of unmixed wine given to him, that he might conquer the emotion that had overpowered him. Though his blind eyes did not show him even the faintest outline of a figure, he felt as if he was flooded with brilliant sunshine. While the Proserpina was bearing him past the lighthouse, Grass told him that they had now reached the great harbour, and at the same time he heard the shouts, whistles, signals, and various sounds of the landing-place, with its crowded shipping, and of the capital. His blood surged in his veins, and before his mind rose the vision of the cornflower-blue sky, mirrored in the calm surface of the bluest of seas. The pharaohs built by Sostratus towered in dazzling whiteness above the tide, and before him rose the noble temple buildings, palaces, and porticoes of the city of Alexandria, with which he was familiar, and before and between them, statue after statue of marble and bronze, the whole flooded with radiant golden light. True darkness sometimes swallowed this wonderful picture, but an effort of the will was sufficient to show it to him again. The temple of Poseidon, cried Grus. The Proserpina is to land at the foot of the steps. And now Hermon listened to the sounds from the shore, whose hum and buzz transported him into the midst of the long-missed city of commerce, knowledge, and arts. Then the captain's shouts of command fell imperiously upon his ears. The strokes of the oars ceased. Their blades sank with loud splash into the water, and at the same instant from the temple steps, Hermon was greeted by the solemn notes of the chorus, from whose rhythm his own name rang forth again and again, like so many shouts of victory. He thought his heart would fairly burst through his arched chest, and the passionate violence of its throbbing did not lessen when Gruss exclaimed, Half Alexandria has assembled to greet you. Ah, if you could only see it, how the kerchiefs are waving, laurel after laurel in every hand. All the distinguished people in the capital have gathered on the sacred soil of the Temple of Poseidon, 
There is Archias, too. There are the artists, and the famous gentlemen of the museum, the members of the Ephebi, and the priests of the great gods. Hermon listened with his hand pressed on his breast, and while doing so, the power of his imagination showed the vast, harmoniously noble structure of the many-pillared temple of Poseidon, surrounded by as many thousands as there were in reality hundreds. From all parts of the sanctuary, even from the tops of the roofs, he beheld laurel branches and kerchiefs waving and tossing, and wreaths flung on the ground before him. If this picture was correct, the whole city was greeting him, headed by the men whom he honoured as great and meritorious, and in front of them all, Daphne, with drooping head full of feminine grace and heart-winning goodness. While the chorus continued their song, and the welcoming shouts grew louder, the brilliant picture faded away, but in return he felt friendly arms clasp him, first Archias, then Proclus, and after him a succession of fellow artists, the greatest of all, drew him into a warm embrace. Finally he felt himself led away, placed his feet as his uncle Archias whispered directions, and as they gropingly obeyed them, ascended the temple steps and stood in utter darkness upon the platform listening to the speeches which so many had prepared. All the distinguished men in the city expressed their sympathy, their pity, their admiration, their hopes, or sent assurances of them to him. The Rhodian Chrysippus, dispatched by the queen, delivered the wreath which the monarch bestowed, and informed Hermon with her greetings that Arsinoe deemed his Demeter worthy of the laurel. Most famous masters of his art, the great scholars from the museum, the whole priesthood of Demeter, which included Daphne, the servants of Apollo, his dear Ephebe, the comrades of his physical exercises, all whom he honoured, admired, loved, loaded him with praises and good wishes, as well as the assurance of their pride in numbering him among them. No form, no colour from the visible world penetrated the darkness surrounding him, not even the image of the woman he loved. Only his ears enabled him to receive the praises, honours, congratulations lavished here, and though he sometimes thought he had received enough, he again listened willingly and intently when a new speaker addressed him in warm words of eulogy. What sheer compassion for his unprecedentedly sorrowful fate had in this extravagantly laudatory and cordial greeting, he did not ask. He only felt with a throbbing heart that he now stood upon a summit which he had scarcely ventured to hope ever to attain. His dreams of outward success which had not been realised because he deemed it treason to his art to deviate from the course which believed right and best adapted to it, he now, without having yielded to the demands of the old school, had praised as his well-earned possessions. He felt as if he breathed the lighter, purer air of the realms of the blessed, and the laurel crown which the Queen's envoy pressed upon his brow, the wreaths which his fellow artists presented to him, by hands no less distinguished than those of the great sculptor Protogenes and Nicias, the most admired artist after the death of Apelles, seemed like the wings on the hat and shoes of Hermes, messenger of the gods, to raise him out of himself and into the air. 
Darkness surrounded him, yet a bright, dazzling light issued from his soul and illuminated his whole being with the warm, golden radiance of the sun. Not even the faintest shadow dimmed it until Sotiles, his fellow student at Rhodes, who sustained him with ardent earnestness in the struggle to prefer truth to beauty, greeted him. He welcomed him and wished him that he might recover his lost sight as warmly as his predecessors. He praised the Demeter too, but added that this was not the place to say what he missed in her. Yet that she did lack it awakened in him an emotion of pain, for this Hermann's last work apparently gave the followers of the ancients a right to number him in their ranks. His cautious expression of regret must refer to the head of his Demeter, yet surely it was not his fault that Daphne's features bore the impress of that gentle winning kindness which he himself and Sotiles, imitating him, had often condemned as weak and characterless. The correctness of his belief was instantly proved to him by the address of grey-haired, highly praised Euphronor, who spoke of the Demeter's countenance with warm admiration, and how ardently the poets Theocritus and Xenodotus extolled his work to the skies. Amid so much laudation, one faint word of dissatisfaction vanished like a drop of blood that falls into a clear stream. The welcome concluded with a final chant by the chorus, and continued to echo in Hermann's ears as he entered his uncle's chariot and drove away with him, crowned with law and intoxicated as if by fiery wine. Oh, if he could only have seen his fellow citizens, who so eagerly expressed their goodwill, their sympathy, their admiration! But the black and coloured mist before his eyes revealed no human figure, not even that of the woman he loved, who, he now learned for the first time from her father, had appeared among the priestesses of Demeter to greet him. Doubtless he was gladdened by the sound of her voice, the clasp of her hand, the faint fragrance of violets exhaling from her fair hair, which he had often remembered with so much pleasure when alone in tennis, but the time to devote himself to her fully and completely had not yet come. For what manifold and powerful impressions, how much there was elevating, delightful and entertaining, awaited him immediately. The Queen's envoy had expressed his mistress's desire to receive the creator of the Demeter, the Ephebi, and his fellow artists had invited him to a festival which they desired to give in his honour, and on the way Archias informed him that many of his wealthy friends in the Macedonian council expected that he, the honoured hero of the day, would adorn with his presence a banquet in their houses. What a rich, brilliant life awaited him, in spite of his blindness, when he entered his uncle's magnificent city home, and not only all the servants and clients of the family, but also a select party of ladies and gentlemen, greeted him with flowers and hundreds of other tokens of affection and appreciation, he gave himself up, without reserve, to this novel excess of fame and admiration. Notwithstanding his blindness, he felt after the burns on his face had healed, thoroughly well, as strong as a giant, nay, more vigorous and capable of enjoyment than ever, what prevented him from revelling to the full in the superabundant gifts which fate, recently so cruel, now suddenly cast into his lap with lavish kindness. 
yet many flattering and pleasant things as he had experienced that day, he was far from feeling satiety. On entering the hall of the men in his uncle's dwelling, the names of famous men and proud beauties had been repeated to him. Formerly they had taken little notice of him, yet now even the most renowned perceived him like an Olympian victor. What did all these vain women really care for him? Yet their favour was part of the triumph whose celebration he must permit to-day. His heart held but one being for whom it yearned, and with whom thus far he had been able only to exchange a few tender greetings. The time for a long conversation had not yet arrived, but he asked Thione to lead him to her, and, while she listened anxiously, described with feverish animation the incidents of the last few days, but he soon lowered his voice to assure her that he had not ceased to think of her even for a single hour, and the feeling of happiness which in spite of his misfortune had filled and lent wings to his soul was not least due to the knowledge of being near her again and her presence really benefited him almost as much as he had anticipated during the hours of solitary yearning in tennis. He felt his great favour of fate to be permitted to strive to possess her, felt even during the delirium of this reception that he loved her. What a tremendous longing to clasp her at once in his arms, as his betrothed bride overwhelmed him! but her father's opposition to the union of his only child with a blind man must first be conquered and the great agitation in his soul as well as the tumult around him seemed like a mockery of the quiet happiness which hovered before him when he thought of his marriage with daphne not until everything was calmer would the time come to woo her until then both must be satisfied with knowing from each other's lips their mutual love and he thought he perceived in the tone of her voice the deep emotion of her heart. Perhaps this had prevented Daphne's expressing her congratulations upon the success of his Demeter as eagerly and fully as he had expected. Painfully disturbed by her reserve, he had just attempted to induce her to give a less superficial opinion of his work when the curtains of the dining-room parted, the music of flutes singing and pleasant odours greeted him and the guests. Archias summoned them to breakfast, and a band of beautiful boys with flowers and garlands of ivy obeyed the command to crown them. Then Thione approached the newly united pair, and after exchanging a few words with Daphne, whispered in an agitated voice to the blind sculptor, over whose breast a brown-locked young slave was just twining a garland of roses. Poverty no longer stands between you and the object of your love. Is it Nemesis who, even now, still seals your lips? Hermann stretched out his hand to draw her nearer to him, and murmur softly that her counsel had aided him to break the power of the terrible goddess, but he grasped the empty air. At the same time the deep voice of his love's father, whose opposition threatened to cloud his new happiness, singing, flute-playing, and the laughter of fair women greeted him, and, only half master of his own will, he assented by a slight bend of the head to the matron's question. A light shiver ran through his frame with the speed of lightning, and the Epicurean's maxim that fear and cold are companions darted through his brain. But what should he fear? 
he had endured severe trials, it is true, for the sake of remaining faithful to truth in art and life, but who probably ever reached the age of manhood without once deviating from it. Besides, he was surely aware, had he been obliged to answer Thione in words, he would not have been guilty of the falsehood. His reply had consisted of a slight motion of the head, and it negatived nothing. It was merely intended to defer for a short time the thing he most desired. Yet the rash answer weighed heavily on his mind, but it could no longer be recalled that day, and was believed, for Thione whispered, We shall succeed in reconciling the terrible being. Again the light tremor ran through him, but it lasted only an instant, for Crisilla, the representative of the dead mistress of the house, whose duty it was to assign the guests their places, called to Hermann. The beautiful Glycera does you the honour of choosing you for a neighbour, and before the sentence was finished, Archias himself seized his arm, and led him to the cushions at the side of the much-courted beauty. The guests began the banquet in a very joyous mood. Greek gaiety and the quick intellect and keen wit of the Alexandrians, combined with the choicest viands of the luxurious capital, with the wines and dainties of all the countries of the Mediterranean, found sellers and buyers, and the cook's vocation was developed into a fine art, to spice this banquet with a hundred charms for the mind and senses. Today, the principal place in this distinguished circle of famous men, great and wealthy, nobles, beautiful and aristocratic women, was awarded to the blind sculptor. He was pledged by everyone who had admired his Demeter, who compassionated his sad fate, or who desired to be agreeable to him or his host. Every kind remark about his person, his blindness, and his masterpiece was repeated to him, and, after the wine and the effort to attract Daphne's attention and shine in the presence of his beautiful neighbour, had heated and winged his thoughts, he found an apt reply to each noteworthy word. When the dessert was finally eaten, and, after sunset, in the brilliant light of the lamps and candles, greater attention was paid to the mixing vessels, all remained silent to listen to his fervid speech. Glycera had asked him at the beginning of the banquet to tell her about the attack in tennis. Now he yielded to her wish that he should repeat the captivating tale to the others, and the spirits of the wine helped him to perform the task with such animation that his hearers listened to his description in breathless suspense, and many eyes rested on the handsome face of the great blind artist as if spellbound. When he paused, loud applause rewarded him, and as it reached him from every part of the spacious room, his deep, resonant voice put him in communication, even with the more distant guests, and he might have been taken for the symposiarch or director of the banquet. This conspicuous position of the fated artist did not please everyone, and a rhetorician, famed for his sharp tongue, whispered to his neighbour one of Herman's older fellow-artists, what his eyes have lost seems to benefit his tongue. The sculptor answered, At any rate, the impetuous young artist might succeed better in proving himself by its assistance a good entertainer than in creating more mediocre masterpieces like the Demeter. Similar remarks were made on other cushions, but when the philosopher 
Egesius asked the famous sculptor Euphranor what he thought of Hermon's Demeter. The kindly old man answered, I should laud this noble work as a memorable event, even if it did not mark the end, as well as the beginning, of its highly gifted creator's new career. Nothing of this kind was uttered near Hermon. Everything that reached him expressed delight, admiration, sympathy, and hope. At dessert the beautiful Glycera divided her apple, whispering as she gave him one half, Let the fruit tell you what the eyes can no longer reveal, you poor and yet so abundantly rich darling of the gods. He murmured in reply that this happiness would awake the envy of the immortals if, in addition, he were permitted to feast upon the sight of her beauty. Had he been able to see himself, Hermon, who, as a genuine Greek, was accustomed to moderate his feelings in intercourse with others, would have endeavoured to express the emotions of joy which filled his heart with more reserve, and to excel his companions at the festival less recklessly. His enthusiastic delight carried many away with him. Others, especially Daphne, were filled with anxious forebodings by his conduct, and others still with grave displeasure. Among the latter was the famous leech Erasistratus, who shared Archias's cushions, and had been solicited by the latter to try to restore his blind nephew's sight. But the kindly physician, who gladly aided even the poorest sufferer, curtly and positively refused, to devote his time and skill to a blind man, who, under the severest of visitations, lulled himself so contentedly in happiness, he considered unjust to others, who desired recovery more ardently. When the intoxication of this unbridled strength passes away, and is followed by a different mood, remarked the merchant, we will talk of this matter again, and the confident tone of his deep voice gave the simple sentence such significance that the learned leech held out his hand, saying, Only where deep, earnest longing for recovery fills the sufferer's mind, will the gods aid the physician. We will wait for the change which you predict, Archias. The guests did not disperse until late, and the best satisfied of all was the grammatius Proclus, who had taken advantage of the rich merchant's happy mood, and his own warm intercession in behalf of his nephew's work, to persuade Archias to advance Queen Arsinoe a large sum of money for an enterprise whose object he still carefully concealed. The highly honoured blind artist spent the night under his uncle's roof. End of Book 2, Chapter 5